Hey everyone, I'm Justin Dean. I'm the recovery director here at the River Church. Thanks for checking out one of our messages today. We love to get connected with you and your family. One easy way to do that is to text River Connect one word to 97000, or you can visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and our upcoming events. If you'd like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to 84321, or you can visit our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the message today. If you got a Bible, let's open them up to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter number 5. We're going to pick up in verse number 31 in just a moment. I do enjoy so much going through the Sermon on the Mount. It is the uh, central teaching of Christianity. It's really Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is seeing the teaching of Jesus and then the rest of of the New Testament finds its roots there. But the reality is Jesus, as he's preaching here, is dropping some bombs one after another. And so we're going to finish up chapter 5 here in uh, the next uh, month. So we'll finish up at the end of November. And then we'll take a year break of the Sermon on the Mount just to give, give everyone a breather. Because I realized um, two weeks ago we talked about murder. Last week we talked about lust. This week we, we're talking about divorce. Next week we're talking about meaning what you say. Your yes be yes and your no be no. The week after that we're talking about revenge. And the week after that we're talking about loving your enemies. So if you want to take a few weeks break, you might. this might be the time. to Because uh, it is just heavy stuff that Jesus is throwing down here. And so, um, and just not afraid, the Lord and his boldness and in truth and uh, just uh, teaching here. But let's pick up in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31. Over the last few weeks, we've been pointing out that this phrase or a version of this phrase, uh, it was also said, or you have heard it said, and then Jesus will contrast that with, but I say to you. And so let's pick up there in verse 31. As always, if you don't have a Bible, share with the person next to you or pull out your smartphone and you can download uh, the River Church app or another Bible app and you can follow along and see God's word uh, for yourself. Verse 31, Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, That everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, obviously, Jesus has taught about adultery just prior to that. And so you can see the connection there or the logical order with which Jesus is moving. Now, I want you to hold your spot in Matthew 5, and I want you to go to the left into the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy, as you're turning there, is part of what we know as the Pentateuch. So it is the first five books of the Bible. They're written by Moses. And so Deuteronomy is Moses' last will and testament. So Moses' Moses's parting words to the people of God. 
Deuteronomy chapter number 24, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency uh, in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. So when Jesus in Matthew 5 says, it was also said, you've heard it said, that um, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is the passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that Jesus is mentioning, that Jesus is uh, alluding to. So at the time that Jesus is speaking, there were a variety of thoughts on the issue of divorce. There were uh, the more conservative folks, there were the more liberal folks that approached the scripture. And so there was a range of teaching as to what Deuteronomy chapter 24 really meant. If you see the phrase there in Deuteronomy 24.1, if she finds no favor in his eyes, some teachers would look at that and say, well, if you looked at your wife and you decided, mm, I'm, I'm done looking at her, I like looking at her instead, then, then you could get a divorce. That was kind of what Deuteronomy 24, they interpreted it as meaning. Or they would take Deuteronomy 24 and say, well, she has found, or he has found some indecency in his wife. So what did indecency mean? Some conservatives would teach that that meant, at the time of Jesus, they would teach that that meant specifically adultery. So if there was some sort of infidelity or adultery, then that would have been a biblical ground for divorce. The other end of the extreme was if you found some indecency, and there are many commentators and Bible scholars who talk about this, that your wife burnt dinner that that would be considered an indecency. I just want you to pause and consider that for a moment. Right? 20 years ago when my wife and I got married, we had a little hole-in-the-wall apartment in uh, just outside of Dallas, Texas, and we lived there for the first year of our marriage. And, and so she is Greek, and so she said one day, hey, I'm going to make lamb and rice. Now, as a young man, I thought, man, I hit the jackpot. My wife is going to make me lamb and rice. Let's do this, right? So she made rice, and she got some lamb, and she put it in the oven, and I thought, it's starting to smell good. I'm like, this is going to be great. So she pulls the lamb out of the, the oven. She goes, this does not look done. Now, I'm not a cook at all. I, I, uh, I can make nothing at all whatsoever. My kids know that, uh, and so I look, and obviously the lamb is not done. And by not done, it looks like it is bloody, and there's a muffled, like, bah, coming from the stove, right? I mean, like, it, this was, like, not done at all, right? And so she's like, oh, my goodness, I, I don't know what happened. I, the recipe said to cook it, like, this long, and it doesn't look done. And in my head, right, I was 21 years old. I had the wherewithal to realize, Josh, this is the moment of truth right here. Uh, number one, do you love your wife? Number two, if you eat this, you can tell people this story 
for the rest of your marriage. So my wife says, hey, don't eat that. I'm like, no, I, I, I love you, honey. I will eat this. So no joke. I remember cutting into this raw lamb, blood everywhere. Sorry, I thought that was my wife coming through here. Uh, so I, I, a little nervous there um, because her version of the story, you know, will be a little different than mine. But uh, she said, no, no, don't eat the lamb. Don't eat the lamb. I'm like, no, it'll be fine. It was not fine, let me tell you, right? That was not biblical grounds. Like, listen, you mess the lamb up, it's over. It's over, right? Well, some of the folks during Jesus' time were teaching that that's what Moses meant in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so let's go back to Matthew chapter number 5. That's the environment in which Jesus is stepping into. So he's stepping into an environment where there are people that believe that there is this, uh, there's, there's indecency means adultery, and that's grounds for divorce. But then there are people, the whole spectrum, the whole gamut of opinions. There's this group over here that says divorce, you know what, if your wife makes you unhappy or she dresses in a particular way that you don't like or you don't like her mom or whatever it might mean, that you can get divorced. And so Jesus is stepping into the middle of that environment. Verse 31 So you've heard it said, or it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, I want to do something here, hopefully a little better than I did at nine this morning. But I want you to hold your spot in Matthew 5 and go over to the right to Matthew 19. And I kind of want to balance these passages of Scripture off each other so you can see what Jesus is teaching there. In Matthew 19... Jesus is going to give a more thorough teaching on divorce. And we're going to dive into that in a moment, but I want you to take a look at verse number seven in particular, because this phrase certificate of divorce is brought up again. Verse seven. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the conservatives responded to Jesus and they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Well, Moses didn't command in Deuteronomy 24 to do that. He did say you have to give a certificate of divorce. Verse 8, Jesus responds to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, not commanded, but allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And we'll come back there in a moment. So just go back to Matthew 5 now. So there was this issue of um, flippancy with marriage. Well, within there, there was also this issue of really being abusive and neglectful to women. Now, you go back to Deuteronomy 24, and you look at Matthew chapter 5. The time period, the culture, was very different than what we live in. Women were not allowed to seek a divorce against their husband. The husband had to divorce his wife. And that was because culturally, men and women were viewed very differently, and not just differently, but viewed as first-class citizens, men, and women would be viewed as second-class citizens. And so a woman was not allowed to, to do that. So the men were abusive to that sort of system. And so that's where the flippancy about divorce came. So if you were to culturally rewind the clock 2,000 years, it's a very different time than what we live in. But just imagine this scenario. A husband who's an idiot has a wife 
who burns dinner. And he goes, you know what? You've burnt dinner one too many times. I am sick of eating raw lamb, right? We're done. We're getting divorced. Get out of my house. So there's the woman thrown out of the house. What is she to do? Culturally, she has no protection. She has no legal standing. She can't go get remarried. And so often what that would lead to is that would lead to adultery or that would lead to prostitution or that would lead to different things out of desperation, all because the husband decided, get out of here, you piece of trash. And so it was very cruel. And so Moses, and Jesus says this in Matthew 19, Moses said, listen, if you're going to get divorced, you need to own up to it and give your wife or your ex-wife a certificate of divorce so that she can say, I am legally divorced. That way she could go and be legally married again for protection, for provision, for providing for life, all of those different things. So it was a very different uh, time period. But look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter number five. So he says, you've heard this command from Deuteronomy 24, and it's there in the Bible. But Jesus says in verse 32, but I say to you, so here's the standard of you know, the law and the interpretation, but I want, I want to give you the, the standard of the kingdom of God here. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, and those two words, sexual immorality, there are, are the word pornea in the Greek. So it literally is where we get the word pornography. So it's sexual morality is a good interpretation of that. But it would be characterized, if you want to write it in your notes, it's the idea of unrepentant sexual sin. So whoever divorces his wife except on the ground of continual unrepentant sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman or a woman who's divorced without this particular reason commits adultery as well. Now, whenever we venture into the issue of divorce, it has, without question, impacted every single person in this room. Whether your parents are divorced, your grandparents, or whether you yourself have been through a divorce, or whether you uh, have seen your kids or a sibling go through a divorce, there's no question that divorce is a, um, a part of our lives. I remember as a kid, uh, my parents had some uh, friends, and I was just a little boy, probably four or five years old, just very young. And I remember my parents' friends, their daughter died, and she was a, a very young girl, younger than I, I was at the time. And I remember... Um, um, knowing that this young girl had died. And then all of a sudden, the next thing in my mind, you know, young brain, you know, just a five or six-year-old little kid, the next thing in my mind is that her parents then got divorced. And so for the longest time in my life, I just associated, okay, divorce and death together. And, and particularly as just a young boy, it was divorce and the death of a young child. Now, sadly, what I didn't know is that often when a child does die, the percentage of divorce that happens there is significantly high. And, uh, but I didn't know that. So those things were connected in my mind. So for a long time, there was kind of a, an unraveling of that and, and understanding and having grace for divorce and understanding then grief and, and, and all of those different things. 
So we each come to the subject of divorce in different ways. Now for some of you, this is, this is a hard subject because it, it stirs some things in your heart, maybe from your, your parents, from being a young boy and hearing your mom and dad say, hey, we're getting divorced. We still love you, but we're getting divorced and you're gonna live in this house or that house. And those were hard things. Those were hard uh, decisions and waters for you to navigate as a young man or a young woman. Uh, maybe it's uh, your own divorce. Maybe it's um, a husband who came home and said, I, I want a divorce. Or maybe it was a wife who came home and said, I, I want to get divorced. I don't love you anymore. We're, or we're done. This is through. And so we each come to this subject um, with, with different, I would say, emotional baggage or expectations or emotional wounds and hurt. And I want you to know um, that my heart, as I approach this subject, is, is trying to, to emulate the Lord and his grace. I want you to know this, that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. If you sit here and you're divorced, know that you are not um, a second or third or fourth class citizen in the kingdom of God. If you have come to Jesus and you have repented of your sins and believed in him, you are a child of God. There are no stepchildren in the family of God. There are only sons and daughters. And so you belong to the Lord. I also want you to know this, and I've seen this from different men and women in my life personally over, over you know, the entirety of my life. Divorce does not permanently forfeit God's using you. You still have a purpose. You still have a calling. You're still valuable. God still loves you, and God still wants to use you in mighty ways. So I want you to know that, okay? But I want to deal with this subject very uh, just forthright and, and just, to, just to tackle what Jesus is saying and what the Scripture teaches us. So let's go over to the right to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, we'll pick up in verse number 3. The Bible says, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. So often the religious leaders, that's who the Pharisees are. They're the more conservative religious leaders. They would come to Jesus and they would ask him questions, but they really didn't want to know the answers. They weren't coming with an open heart to hear the truth. They were coming because they wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to set Jesus up. They wanted to catch Jesus in some sort of inconsistency. Can I just pause here, by the way? The amount of young adults sitting in this room, I'm so thankful that you are here, by the way. I just, I just want you to know that. If, if you are in middle school, high school, college age, young men, women, I'm so blessed that you're here, and I wonder why you're here. <laughs> so I'm like, I just feel like an old, boring guy. Uh, but sorry, this is internal dialogue that probably should have stayed internal, but I'm so thankful you're here. I'm just so blessed, okay? I just am, I'm really moved right now. And just your opening God's word and your eagerness to hear truth. It's so, so wonderful. All right, verse three. So the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So they're looking for Jesus to pick a side on this conservative versus liberal debate of Deuteronomy 24. So Jesus answered them, have you not read... 
that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So what does Jesus do? He he does something super, super brilliant. Deuteronomy 24 is preceded by Genesis chapter number one, two, and three, right? Chronologically in the Bible. So Jesus said, well, yeah, there's, there's Deuteronomy 24, but let's go back to the beginning. Have you not read the beginning, which is Genesis, that God, Genesis 1, created people male and female? So here it is, page one of the Bible, there are two sexes, two genders. There are men and there are women. That's just the way God has established the order of creation. And then Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2 which is here in in verse number five. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and two shall become one flesh. So they, Jesus continues, verse six, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here's Jesus affirming marriage. Here's Jesus affirming a biblical definition of marriage. One man and one woman becoming one flesh, making a covenant with each other and making a covenant with God. Here's the reality. It doesn't matter what society says about marriage. It doesn't matter if people say two guys can get married, two ladies can get married, one guy can marry five women, one woman can marry five dudes, whatever it might be. Nobody gets to redefine marriage because God defined it. God has established it. And so it is a man and a woman, and and apparently now we have to say a biological male and a biological woman, which is silly. There is a man and there is a woman. There's no such thing as non-binary or any of those types of things. There are men and there are women. And marriage is between one man and one woman. So this man... Verse number five says, therefore this man shall leave his father and mother, the family of origin, and hold fast to his wife, and two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Here's the divine kind of glue, if you will, if I can call it such a thing. What therefore God has joined together. So two people, a man and a woman who come together in marriage, whether they get married in a church building or whether they get married in a backyard, whether they get married in a barn, whether they get married at the justice of the peace, it doesn't matter. Those two people coming together, whether they're aware of it or not, are coming before God. Oftentimes the pastor or the priest, whoever it might be, is a symbol of that. But the truth is, a man and a woman are coming before God and they are covenanting. They are making a covenant with each other and they're making a covenant before God. And God is uniting them together. That's why we often use the word holy matrimony. So God is bringing them together. And then Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man tear asunder or rip. We're going to go through in 
this passage and another one from 1 Corinthians, kind of biblical grounds or a biblical understanding of divorce. But if you're sitting here and you've experienced divorce personally or you've witnessed divorce, there's really no such thing as an amicable divorce. It's always a, a ripping. It's always hard. There's always collateral damage. There's always an emotional, spiritual, even physical in some cases, cost because divorce is so hard. Why? Because God has glued two people together. And now because of circumstances or adultery or unrepentant sexual morality, whatever the circumstances might be, there is a ripping of two people, even two people who don't know Christ, even two people who are not Christians because they've entered into holy matrimony They've entered into a covenant, whether they're even cognizant of that covenant being with God, they've entered into that covenant. And when divorce happens, there's still a ripping there. There's still a division of of oneness that God has brought together. Now, hold your spot in Matthew and go to the right because I want to set this groundwork as well. Go to the book of Ephesians real quick. Ephesians chapter 5. Here is why marriage and divorce are such a big deal. Ephesians chapter number 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 31 there, and you'll know this verse, you'll, you'll recognize this one. Ephesians 5, 31, take your time to get there. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31 Paul, the Apostle Paul, is now going to quote um, Genesis 2, and he's going to affirm what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. Paul says this mystery, the mystery of two becoming one, is profound. This, this, is a, this is a hard to wrap your mind around. This is a profound idea. And look at what Paul says. He says, I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. So we have, we have a curtain back here. Behind there are some, you know, some music stands and some other instruments and some amps and some different things. If I were to pull the curtain back, you'd see a very uninspiring, you know, maybe five, six feet backstage. That's what Paul does. Paul says, you see marriage. He says, for this cause, the cause of marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And that's profound because a man and a woman who are very different, wired very different, built very different, physiologically, psychologically, emotionally, those two are brought together to become one. And then Paul pulls back the curtain of marriage and he says, guess what? It refers to Marriage between a man and a woman refers to, points to, illustrates Christ and the church. That's why previously in in verse 25 of that same chapter, he says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. So guess what? Marriage between a man and a woman is sacred and holy and needs to be honored because it's a living, breathing illustration of the gospel 
of how Christ has loved us and sent his own, or Christ came and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and Jesus rose from the dead and it's through Jesus that we can receive the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. We didn't earn God's favor, we didn't merit God's love, but God demonstrated his mercy to us, Romans says, while we were still sinners. And so that's why marriage is really sacred and really important. So it points to Christ in the church. Malachi tells us this, last prophet in the Old Testament. Malachi 2 tells us that God hates divorce. Well, why does God hate divorce? Certainly God hates divorce because of the the harm, the hurt that it causes men and women and kids and the pain of that. But why does God ultimately hate divorce? He hates divorce because it is a ripping of an illustration of his love for his people. It's it's a destruction of a living, breathing illustration of God's enduring love and kindness and mercy and commitment to the church. Now let's go back to Matthew 19. So, Matthew 19, 6, I want you to see there's so many wonderful things that Jesus is Uh, teaching here. Verse 6. So he quotes, Jesus quotes in verse 5, Genesis 2. Now in verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh. You know what's great because of the gospel? Marriage, right, points to the gospel, Christ in the church. You and I have been glued to Christ. We are one with Christ. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. That's why the Bible says we have the mind of Christ. My mind is jacked up, so I need the mind of Christ. I I want to be able to see people and think and process and respond in the way Christ would, so I need need Christ. So the beauty is the gospel glues me to Christ. So God, and you can look at it from that vantage point, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God can't separate that. I'm, I'm stuck with Christ. It's great. Now, to the picture of marriage. So God joins a husband and wife together and Jesus says, let not man separate that. Verse seven, so they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of heart. Because of the hardness of your heart. That's why Moses allowed. I want you to see the balance of those two words there. There's the word in verse seven, allowed, or excuse me, command, and then there's the word in verse number eight, allowed you to divorce your wives. What Jesus is saying is, listen, guys, Deuteronomy 24 is not a command to divorce your wife. It's not like you found some indecency in her and you're like, I'm sorry, sweetie. It says in the Bible, we gotta be done. Let me go ahead and get some blank piece of paper out there. Do you want me to write your maiden name on here? But here's your certificate of divorce. Like Certificate, by the way, a weird thing. It's like congratulations, right? It's such, a, such an interesting word there in the passage. Jesus is saying, Moses wasn't commanding you. Moses is acknowledging the hardness of your heart, the mercilessness of your heart to divorce your wives. Look at what Jesus says in verse 8. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality, pornea, 
and marries another, commits adultery. Now look at the disciples. These are students of Jesus, and they've been with Jesus for some time. Right? They, they've been with Jesus. We're, we're knocking on, if we go chronological in Matthew's gospel, they've been with Jesus for almost three years. The disciples said to, to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Why? Because their understanding culturally was that you can get divorced if your wife upsets you or if your wife burns dinner or if you find somebody else that you like more. What's Jesus saying? No, 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 no. Marriage is God gluing two people together because ultimately it's a picture of the gospel. So from the very beginning, this is the way it's supposed to be. Now let's leave Matthew 19 and let's go to the right to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. First Corinthians chapter number seven and verse ten. Well, let's go eight. Scripture says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So Paul's saying, and he's later on going to talk about this in the same chapter. He's saying, because I'm single, I have a lot more free time to serve the Lord. That's really what he's saying. He says, but if they, meaning someone who's widowed or someone who's single, someone who's unmarried, cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So we have a sex drive that God has wired us with. If you're widowed or if you're single and you can keep that under control, and live an honorable, pure life before the Lord, then do so and serve the Lord. But if you can't get married, that's okay too. Um, Previously in um, verse number number seven, God calls that a gift as well. So this is really a win-win. So the challenge is stay single, honor the Lord. If you want to get married, that's great. Get married too. That's a win as well. Verse 10, so to the married... I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, He should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So let's dive into some of these scenarios here that Paul is laying out. A little bit different cultural context in Corinth. 
Paul has come to Corinth and he's preached the gospel. And these are first generation Christians. They don't know any other Christians other than the Christians that they're meeting with in their local assembly. And so they would hear the gospel and they may get saved. So let's paint the scenario as Paul does here. He begins there in verse 12 saying, there's a man who's a Christian, who's come to know Jesus, who's married to a woman who's not a Christian. So he comes home and says, hey, I just got some great news for you. I met this guy named Paul. He told me about this guy named Jesus, who's the son of God who died for my sins, rose from the dead. I believe in Jesus. I have surrendered my life to Christ. And the wife says, great. I'm happy for you. That's not for me, but I'm happy for you. That seems to have made a positive difference in your life. Um, I don't want to be a Christian, but I'm glad you are. Paul says, if that's the response, and it's kind of summarized in that phrase there, if she consents to live with you, then stay married. Don't become a Christian. Your wife says she doesn't want to become a Christian, and you're like, well, we're getting divorced because this Jesus thing is way more important to you. Paul says, you know, stay there. And the reason you stay there is because, and there's several verses there going on down to verse 16, you don't know the impact you're going to have staying in that marriage. So stay there. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult because the values of a Christian, the processing of a Christian, the hopes, the dreams, the ambitions of a Christian will look radically different than someone who's even moral, but is a non-believer. So it's being aware of that. The Bible would call it being unequally yoked. So if you're sitting here and you're not married, one of the worst things you can do in your life as a Christian is get married to a non-believer. If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you do not date unbelievers. You don't do it, right? We used to have all these dumb sayings when I was a kid. Like It was like flirt to convert or missionary dating or all these other stupid things, right? Like, I, I, listen, I'm a Christian and who knows what? Don't do it. Don't do it, okay? I can't even believe I said those things out loud. I'm embarrassed for myself. <laughs> My wife is gonna mock me. I can hear, I can see your face right now. So what's Paul do? He, he changes the illustration. He says, let's say you're a woman and you come to know Christ. You repent of your sins, you believe in Jesus and you go home to your husband who's a Greco-Roman man and you say to him, I've become a follower of Jesus and he says, what? Like, uh, okay, I guess, that's cool. We can make this work. And the Bible says he consents to live with her. Then you stay married. My grandmother, um, who I, I just saw last Sunday, um, she's uh, 83 years old. No, 84. 84 years old. For 40 years, she lived in a marriage where she was a believer and my grandfather was not. I thank the Lord at the end of my grandfather's life, a couple years before he passed away, he came to know Christ. But for many years, my grandma lived in that marriage with a man who was not a Christian, was quasi a moral man, but not a believer. A very difficult situation to navigate, and then very difficult for kids to navigate, right? Dad's not a Christian, but mom's a Christian, and, and that causes, can often cause a split and strife and difficulty in the home. So what does Paul say? 
You got a believer who's married to a non-believer. If the non-believer is willing to stay, consents to live, then you stay married. You stay in the mix because you're hoping that there'll be a gospel impact. But let's say a believer is married to a non-believer and the believer, excuse me, the non-believer leaves. Look at verse 15, just for clarity. If the unbelieving partner, so whether that's the husband or whether that's the wife, separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So you got a believer who's married to a non-believer. The non-believer says, yeah, I don't want to do this. I'm out. Then the believer is free, not enslaved. What do we mean by that? Do we mean that the believer is um, not hurt? Of course not. Of course there's going to be hurt. Of course there's going to be emotional wounds and scars and regrets and, man, what if I would have, and, and, and so many of those different things. But before God, the believer stands free, stands clean. Now, I want you to hear this, and we're going to get a bit technical over the next few minutes. I'm going to try to land this clearly. As I look at the Bible, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, some passages in Mark and Luke, and then I look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, that is the only reason two people should ever get divorced. is when a non-believer leaves. Now, if you've been paying attention, you might go, well, no, Jesus said sexual morality. Like, if, if there's sexual morality, pornea in there, then, then, then that's, that's the only reason. Maybe Paul, is he misunderstanding here? Is he adding a second reason? No, I think it's the same reason. And I want to show you that. Go back to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. The Bible says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And I want you to take particular note of the next four words. Do not be deceived. And I just want to pause here, and I could preach a whole separate sermon here, but I will not. That right there is the most haunting phrase for me. That, that concept in the Bible is the most haunting phrase for me as a pastor. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll get to in, I think, 2035, so that'll be nice to get there eventually. But we'll get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, in that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, I'll say, depart from me, I do not know you. There are some of you sitting here, some of you watching online, you have deceived yourself into believing that you're a real follower of Jesus, and you're not. And I want you to understand that. I want to as gently but as clearly communicate that. Look at what the Bible says. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor the thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's not people that struggle with temptation to these sins that the Bible is talking about. The Bible is talking about people whose lives are characterized by these sins. 
You could use the word practice. It is in total conflict for someone to say, I live in sexual morality, but I'm also a Christian. I want you to hear me. No, you are not. You're deceived. That's why, and again, I'm not, I have no access to grind against the LGBTQIA plus community. But for people to say, I'm a practicing homosexual and I'm a follower of Jesus, no, you are not. You're not. The Bible is definitively clear about that. We love men and women who struggle with identity or gender or sexuality. We love them, care for them. But we are not going to be like, oh, no, it's okay. You can live that lifestyle. You can live that way and be a Christian. The same is true for guys who think it's okay to be a porn addict. Man, I'm, 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 I, I, just, I'm a, I struggle with porn addiction, and I just, I just can't get free of it, but I do love Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. Man, I don't know. And for some of you men in here, young men, old men, whatever it might be, that ought to scare you to death. Because the Bible is sending a warning shot over the bow of our life saying, do not be deceived. You can't be the guy that's cheating on his wife and be like, oh, I love Jesus. You know, I know it'll be forgiven. What are you talking about? We, we, we lie to ourselves. So the sexually immoral, what are we talking about? We're talking about people who live in unrepentant sexual sin before they're married. You're a Christian? I don't think so. Otherwise, the Lord is going to convict you and he's going to haunt you until you repent. He'll chasten you. So the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, I mean, there's so much going on in here. So how does that connect in with divorce? You have, and I run into this scenario a lot in counseling. You have a, let's say, often I'll have a woman who's a believer and a husband who claims to be a believer but won't stop cheating. He is not a Christian and he has left the marriage. He has, in in the words of verse 15, he has separated. The unbelieving partner is separate. I don't care if he's a pastor. I don't care if he's a deacon. I don't care if he's a Sunday school teacher. I don't give a rip who that guy thinks he is. If he can say, man, I just, this is just who I am. That's who you are. You are not a Christian. You are not a follower of Jesus. And you have left. To me, that is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 and what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 19. And that's what Paul is kind of um, exploring and kind of explaining in greater detail and nuance in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and uh, chapter 7. There's another scenario I run into. You have a wife who loves the Lord. You have a husband who professes to love the Lord, but the husband beats his wife. I want to deal very sensitively with this issue. If that's you, I want you to know that you are loved here, ladies, and our church commits to protecting you. Um, that is a crime. That is a crime that we do not turn our 
our, our eyes away from, that is, that is a crime that needs to be prosecuted. But I will run into these husbands who you have a wife who the husband claims to be a Christian. Years ago, I went through some uh, different domestic abuse training and they said, hey, one of the flags that you'll know that um, if you're dealing with, with spousal issues like this and you want it, you're, you're, you're sensing that there might be abuse there, you can be definitive that there's abuse if the guy comes in and sits down and says, hey, before we start our meeting, can we pray? So I remember sitting there one time and I thought, man, this, I don't know, this, 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 this couple, there seems to be some problems here. There seems to be abuse here. And the husband sits down and says, Pastor, before we start, can we pray? And I'm like, you wife beater, you, right? Like, <laughs> like I, no, let's pray because I'm praying I don't smack you while your eyes are closed, right? Um, sorry, that was, I should have kept all that in, right? right? So you have a husband, you have a wife and you have a husband. A husband is abusive. That husband is not a believer. And to me, in my opinion, verse 12 of chapter 7, he is not consenting to live with her. That's not consenting to live. What has happened? I believe that that man has, in all practical purposes, left the marriage. He's a, doesn't, he can claim to be a believer. Doesn't matter. He, he has left the marriage. Now let's jump back to chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6. Because that list in verse 9 and 10 are some heavy things. And it ought to rattle some of our hearts. Verse 11 wonderful phrase, and such were some of you. You were these things. This is who you were in the past. It doesn't mean that as a believer, you won't struggle. Maybe you're a man in here and you struggle with same-sex attraction. I want you to know you are loved and you are cared for and you are welcome here. You can be a Christian and a follower of Jesus and be tempted to certain sins. Sexual morality, idolatry, adulterers, thieves. You can struggle. You can be tempted to greed. You can be tempted to alcoholism. But you can be a follower of Jesus. When we plunge in and we live in unrepentant, it would, that just becomes the, the practice of our life. What we need to understand about ourselves is we are proving that our relationship with Jesus is not real. And oftentimes it's a fiction because it's based upon emotion or it's based upon, well, when I was 15 years old, I went to camp, or when I was 12 years old, I got confirmed, or when I was five years old, I prayed a prayer. And I, I have to be good because there is that moment in my life. The problem is that moment in your life is not verified or validated by the pattern of your life. Those moments of your life will be verified and, and, and um, become solidified because the pattern of your life will not be marked by perfection, but will be marked by repentance. Conviction, the chastening of the Lord, and then repentance, turning from sin. So what does Paul say? 
to the church at Corinth and to us. Such were some of you. You were these things. You used to live like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is wonderful news. Like this, this is who I was. Like I practiced these things and I was broken in sin, but then Jesus rescued me, right? The power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit drew me to the Lord and he washed me, right? This initial washing. And then he sanctified me, right? Throughout my life, he is cleansing my life and I stand before God justified because of the, right? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So what we do is we do not look around and condemn people for that. We bring the hope of the gospel. Whether that is in their past, their present, whether they're struggling that with the future, we preach the gospel, the good news, that Jesus came to save sinners. Maybe divorce is not what you're struggling with. Maybe it's something else there. I want you to know that God loves you and he sent Christ to pay the penalty for your sin on the cross. Jesus was buried and Jesus rose from the dead. I want you to look at verse 11 again. And such were some of you. Paul would say it in 2 Corinthians 5 this way, there's an old you and there's a new you. There's the you that used to be this. And there's the new you that has been made new in Christ. So maybe you are here and you are single. I want you to at least learn from this and approach marriage with that the, the sacredness with which marriage uh, is due. Maybe you grew up in a family that marriage was not treated in such a way. And that can mean your parents are still married and miserable or your parents are divorced or there's abuse or whatever it might be. But I want you to approach marriage in that way. Some of you, you are divorced and you're, you're remarried right now and you say, okay, so... Does that mean I need to get divorced again and go back to my first wife or my first husband? No. Right? What it means is you come to God and you say, God, uh, here we are. And these are things we didn't know. Or maybe we knew and we're just here, Lord, and we're a mess. We need you to make us new. We need you to wash us and cleanse us and redeem our story. You know what God is great at? God is great at redeeming stories. It's interesting, even as I'm standing here, I'm thinking about different things. I was reading the book of Jonah the other day, just in my own life. Sorry, I got to say the Old Testament prophets to find them here. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. And I... There were several times in the book where the Lord just kind of spoke to me. And um, when often in our life, when we would write or we would say, this is the end, God writes or he says, oh no, that's just a to be continued. 
And so maybe your story is one of brokenness and sorrow because of your family of origin or some decisions that you've made. Maybe you were the cause in your marriage. Maybe you were the one who committed adultery. Maybe you were the one who left. Maybe you were the one who was not a believer. Maybe you were the one who said you were a believer, but you were a false believer. Know that we serve a God and we worship a God who is long-suffering and patient and merciful and gracious. And you can come to the Lord and say, God, here is my mess. First Peter says we cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. God, here is my mess. I'm a mess. Maybe you're sitting here and you're on the precipice of divorce. I say this sometimes and I don't even mean it as a joke. It sometimes comes across as a joke. But maybe you're married to a moron. Maybe you are. I would encourage you at the end of the gathering, my wife will be right over here to the right and she can empathize with what it's like to be married to a moron. I mean that. Here's the tricky spot she's had to be in for a lot of years. She's married to a moron, but people don't think I am. So it hurts hurts her even more. You can say, how do you do this? How do, I, how do I stay in when he's an idiot? When he's careless, when he's unkind. Now, if there's physical abuse, that's a different thing. So I want to make sure I put that caveat here and that asterisk here so things aren't confused. But God will, will reward your faithfulness and diligence to the covenant of marriage you saying, I will honor marriage because it's a gospel issue. And I believe God will redeem that. I believe God will be your strength, your fortress. I believe God will be your great help when you're all alone. Let's pray together.